Cooking with Chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chang. Hello, Li Wen. Good to be back with you. Hello, Marcel. I'm very happy that we are back in such an interesting time again. Yeah, interesting times indeed. Uh, we have an, or the United States have an president elected, Joe Biden. How does that resonate from the channels to China that you are actually commuting? Oh my God, you can't imagine. So on the social media in China, there were a lot of interest in the past of the election in the US because this is something, of course, important for the world. But I have never seen such passionate discussion on the details of the election on Chinese social media about the American presidential election. I have been stunned by all these live broadcasts of information like which county, uh, the counting of the votes and what is the rules and what that means for Biden, uh, for the Republicans and for the Democrats in such a density. Well, why do you think is that? Yeah, is that because of an interest in po political uh, processing, so in the democratic processes? Or is it just China related that people think, okay, uh, Trump or Biden, this is what it's all about for us? Or is it a deeper interest? Yeah, I thought about it. And I think it's because of the high integration between the two economies nowadays, and also the, the human exchanges. There are so many Chinese now, unprecedented number of Chinese living in the US, or their children living in the US, or studying. And many people's business also will be affected. So this is personal interest now for many of these like middle class and above people. More than ever before, probably. More than ever before. So they, they, of course, and now because of the crisis in the US is so obvious, everybody get a bit anxious. And the new phenomenon I observe is that the political understanding of the younger generation of Chinese in US and outside US about the United States situation is really high. Does it apply for millennials also or for a generation like born in the 80s or in the 90s? Or are you talking really about young people? Younger people, I mean, people who were born after the 1980s, I think they are very much educated on this now. But people who were born before the 1980s, they are also very fiercely participating in it. The New York Times article about the Chinese intellectuals in the US, so-called intellectuals, or, or those opinion leaders who are older generation, they are very much supporting Trump actively spreading the fake news and, you know, all these Steve Bannon uh, conspiracy theories among themselves, the election has been rigged. Why is that? Ian Johnson tried to explain that. Also, some Chinese young scholar in the US explained that, that these generation believe that the US democracy set an example for the democracy in the future China. So there is a kind of beaconism belief in their mind that the Americans serve, American democracy serve as the beacon for the future of China. But now they see that maybe China is getting an upper hand. So they're very anxious psychologically. They depend on Trump's bullying attitude towards China very much because this is what they believe will help America to win. 
And they have no faith in Biden's or in Democratic Party milder approach. Can you explain the, the, the why do you say beacon or why do they regard it as a beacon? In, in what regards especially? United States has been promoting itself as the beacon of democracy for the world, right? It's, it's been a long time. In all these Hollywood movies and speeches of American presidents given in the Cold War to the Eastern Bloc and etc. So especially after the Cold War, this kind of self-projection continues in its export of ideology. My generation and above, we received this signal from this uh, American ideological exports. And that means the American model is the best. Market economy in American model is the best. Election system, legal system, American stands for the peak of world democracy. Once you establish this concept, coming out of a very chaotic and poor China in the 1980s, you somehow have this phase kind of embedded in your brain that this is the hope and this is where China should mm -hmm. head. And the decay or the decline of American democracy at the moment is very painful for this generation and above to witness, to see their hope fade out in front of their eyes. Are we talking about Chinese in China or overseas Chinese? Both. I mean, these that have critical mind, that's still pro-democracy. They are both in China and they are outside China nowadays. If you would quantify that, how, how many people are we talking about? What is the share in this age group of people who consider this as a decline and as a loss of hope? It's probably not officially discussed, right? This is going underground, these kind of discussions. I don't have the data, to be honest. I would say majority of the Chinese in America at my age and above would support the Republican policy simply because they see the uh, affirmative action in the university, which means to recruit black students, give more opportunity to them, is a threat to their own children, the Asian kids, very hardworking. They feel that the black students are getting an unjust favor in the competition into the good universities. And their economic situation is better than the black community mostly. So these Chinese middle class, they are much more in support of the Republicans' tax policy. So they have a natural inclination always towards the less tax and less uh, racial justice sort of. I mean, on the other hand, it's a complicated issue because the, the Asians are also a marginalized group in the U.S., but they somehow found their route towards better economic situation there. So they are not in line with the Black Lives Matter in my generation, but the younger generation is different. I have a friend, he's in Silicon Valley. He told me that all of the computer engineers in Silicon Valley from China, even the young ones, are also supporting the Republicans this time. And he, she was really shocked. Talking about Republican policies, it was very eye-catching. It is probably not the most important point in the coming administration, but it is a very strong signal, is that Biden turns around the Trump approach regarding Tibet. Biden says he will meet the Dalai Lama and he will go along with the US-Tibetan Policy Act from 2002. Under Trump, the post of a special coordinator was vacant and uh, Biden picks on a tradition in the US uh, meeting the Dalai Lama for the last three decades. Mm. I don't think it's the most important political strategy the Biden administration follows, but it is a very strong signal. How do you think will this affect the implementation and the inauguration of the new US administration in China? 
We are both very familiar with the three T issues, right? The Tiananmen, Taiwan, and Tibet sensitive issues. How the international society has been dealing with it, especially Western democratic countries, gesture of supporting, for example, the Tibetan dissidents. The, now the more sensitive issue lies in Xinjiang, the Uyghur community that are putting the concentration camp. Actually, at the moment, I think Tibet is not at the forefront of the crisis between China and U.S. The core issue is actually Taiwan. But Biden administration has not yet officially assured Taiwan that the defense pact that they have promised Taiwan, which means if Taiwan is invaded by mainland China, the U.S. will help Taiwan to defend. To, to announce that he meets the Dalai Lama as a sign to also go on other issues, right? It's just a representation of the three T's, for example. But Taiwan is kind of uh, integrated in that basic approach, I think, right? Biden goes and says, I meet the Dalai Lama, which also could hint on a tightening step with Taiwan. Of course, it's a very assuring gesture. Biden showing that about Tibet. I don't care about what Xi Jinping will say about it. And that is a good gesture. I'm just more concerned with Taiwan at the moment. Because basically what we see in Tibet is that the whole autonomous region, so-called, or province, is now tamed. But do you think it will deteriorate the situation in the Taiwan Strait and also South China Sea that we have now elected President Biden? Because if he goes along with his democratic predecessor, which was Barack Obama, he would actually pick on a soft power strategy in that region like Obama did. Within the last 12 months, 18 months, a lot of things have happened and shaped the relation between not only China and the US, but also China and the rest of the world. So far, I think the US will also, under Biden, apply a more strict geostrategical approach in Taiwan and also in the South China Sea, because they learned that it is hard to trust the Chinese government on issues that have been actually fixed by contracts. Hong Kong, for example. The Biden administration will consider that and will strengthen its military appearance in the region and probably also its rhetoric compared to what Obama has done, like up to four years ago. I hope so. There are lots of concerns now in Asian Pacific region, especially those countries that are involved in South China Sea and also in Japan is the case of East China Sea. These countries are rather concerned. They're anxiously watching what Biden would do, because in Obama administration's eight years of time, they somehow have missed the best time strategically to counter China's expansion of power in the South China Sea. Because that China is part of the UNCLOSE, which is the United Nations uh, agreement on the ocean law, in which countries agree not to build, for example, artificial islands in disputed regions. There's this exclusive economic zones and there's territorial sea. Territorial sea is within full legal the rules of the nation state. But economic exclusive zones, very often overlapping with each other, shared by the countries there, you should not claim it as your own, your national assets. And you are not allowed to build anything artificial there to claim it. But China is doing it. They have done it and they have built military bases there and they are patrolling more and more. This is basically a, making it status quo that in the future, the whole South China Sea will become part of China's territorial sea.
The former State Secretary of Singapore from the Foreign Ministry, Bilahari Kausikan is his name. He had a comment in a Nikkei Asia media outlet. And one sentence was, you need muscle and the will to use it to make them respect your values and rules. And it's interesting to see that this is Singapore, the Chinese-dominated ethnic state. And you have someone from the political elite to give these comments. Probably saying these things from the region is more credible than someone from the US or from the European Union, because you could be blamed of having no idea of the cultural differences or so. Every nation next to China, every neighbor of China agree on this. And now the Japanese are also very worried that Biden will follow the same route. I remember I, I met a German guy like 10 years, 12 years ago. He used to live in China for quite a while. I had a discussion with him and, and he said a, a sentence. He said, the only language the Chinese understand is strength. And that goes along with my experience with my landlord back in Beijing, who was really trying to squeeze us. And after we agreed on a price for our monthly rent, he suddenly toppled it over and said, no, I want more. Although we already agreed. And at that point, we said, you know what? No, we don't do it. And instead of anger, you know, showing us towards us, no, I, I don't accept this money. I need more money. He suddenly said, okay, okay, he won't do it. So I'm right. Okay, we, go, we do it the way we agreed on. So my experience was actually exactly this. Show your muscles and you get concessions from China. Is this a misperception by myself? Or is it really like in Chinese society that there is this kind of mentality? Yeah. China is still not a society, it's not a country that is obeying rule of law. So power still speak a lot. This is defined by a regime that worship power and exclusive power. If you have more power, if you have higher status, you can get away with many things. Rule is nothing. Rule doesn't apply to you. So in such a society that is defined, where the political power defines everything, like you can have your way once you have power, of course it will reflect on many aspects in the foreign policy as well. In the past, since the 1980s, opening and reform of China until 2008, China has been very cautious. The political leaders at that time knew that China was weak. China was not capable of showing the muscle yet. Even on South China Sea, China was able, Deng Xiaoping was able to reach an agreement to make concession on the territorial disputes on the sea with Vietnam. And that was the very exceptional time. Starting from 2008 until now, it's the time that China show, okay, I now have strengths. I have to have my way. And this is something the Western societies have not yet fully grasped. They are still fooling themselves. They think, oh, in the past, we anyway somehow managed with bargaining. Within certain range, Chinese also obey the rules when it comes to trade and uh, investment and, you know, international issues. They, they still manage to counter China's influence in many ways, but they refuse to see that for the past 12 years, China has flipped the coin. I haven't said so about China's influence. Uh, recently, there was agreement on the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. And the media resonance, not only the media, but like from the industry and from politics, it was, oh, see now what's going on. And it was kind of, oh, we're really late. That was kind of a wake-up call, which is, which is a good thing. The RCEP is something that has caused a lot of um, 
anxiety actually at the moment because it's something new. It's something that for the first time, United States and European countries are not leading a significant regional international trade agreement. That is something new, alien. And it is actually symbolic for the region, for the world too, especially the Western world. The other thing that is alarming is that unlike the TPP, the RCEP doesn't require its member to take steps to liberalize their economies and protect labor rights, environmental standards, and intellectual property. And you can see how significant this is, that it is actually a deliberate challenge, more or less. Like, let's get rid of these, you know, Western-guided principles for trade. We do trade. We don't care about all the fuss that the Western democracy made in the past. This is something that worries me because it really gives another advantage to the capitals nowadays that has been enhanced, enabled in the past decades of globalization to exploit further into the market with no meaningful labor protection and, let's say, intellectual property rights and etc. So... In a way, it is actually something I think one should pay attention to. And it's actually dragging down the bar of trade in a way that is uh, further tilting towards the favor of the capital instead of the labors. And of course, every capitalist loves that, right? So for Biden, I think he faced a lot of challenges on his table. On one hand, he has to deal with the big crisis and democratic-wise and pandemic control-wise back home. And on the other hand, he has China in the whole Asia-Pacific region leading the whole world to another direction, simply by the lure of trade and investment that favors unrestrained capital maneuver. This is something that is really, I mean, it's, it's a huge crisis. And I have no idea how he's going to, I mean, he really needs to be very very tough, very strong, with a clear vision, not shying away from huge challenges of our history. Well, it's definitely a, a leverage to, to be as a strong power, the, the US as a strong economic power, the US still can enter uh, talks with the RCEP community. It's too late. I mean, all the fundamental rules have been written there. If United States step in now, what bargaining chip does it have to ask all the 15 member states of RCEP to say, okay, we still need to add labor protection, intellectual property protect, right protection, and etc. all these clauses back into their agreements. Yeah, I hope there, there's still some space for navigating. I still believe in the common sense in countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, also uh, some of the ASEAN countries to actually not turn a blind eye to these things. I mean, basically for them and now the most important thing is to get market access in China and no regulations on or restrictions on exports. I still think, yeah, there's place for chances to counterbalance. But of course, we are under time pressure, definitely. Let's hope that the US and Europe settle their trade struggles they have to really counterbalance that because what we have to think about is how does common decade shape the geostrategic environment and what is the role of the European Union in it? Yeah. Still struggling for unity, but with an agreement, basic agreement on core values with the United States, I think you could definitely create a counterbalance to China's efforts in all these agreements. Yeah, there's two chances, of course.
I think at the moment, the key is that Biden take the lead again to bring the U.S. to the leading position, the willingness to lead again and to unite European Union in this battle or competition with China. And that is the only hope at the moment. Otherwise, well, we are now seeing that China is taking this window opportunity of the split or division or lack of unity between the Western democracies. Do you think we lost like the allies like Japan, South Korea, Australia? If nobody is willing to lead, then of course, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand would of course just follow the next one who is willing to lead. They are smaller economies and countries, you know, they have no other choices. That's not correspondent with Japan's self-concept, I think, right, to, to follow the China lead, nor is it from the South Koreans, right? Yeah, that's the thing. You have to also consider, I mean, these politicians in these countries, Asian Pacific dem democracies, for them to stabilize their own political power, they also need the economy to look good, right? And at the pandemic time, everything's so unstable and China presents the best opportunity to invest, to produce and to consume. So at the moment, they are really lack of alternatives to stabilize the economy. Well, what we're expecting definitely is um, when we regard the new five-year plan from the Chinese government or furthermore, uh, not only five years, but uh, the strategy China Standards 2035. This is what I regard a real challenge, this China Standard thing. Because these standards, we know, economical standards or industrial standards, they manifest in a lot of ways in politics and in society. To draw or to build the bridge to what my horror scenario is, by setting standards in 15 years in certain industries and by them dictating other countries how the rules are, you have to comply to, it's very easy for the China or it would be very easy for the Chinese government to tell foreign governments to make their media shut up about certain issues in their countries, to make people not go on the street to demonstrate against Chinese policies in Hong Kong, towards the Uyghurs, um, all these critical issues we're talking about right now. So I'm really concerned that the Chinese power could reach this far with this new strategy, that it really meddles into, really meddles into politics in other countries by telling them to accept core values of the Chinese party. We are actually already in such a time of kleptocracy. Kleptocracy means that political elite in non-democratic countries using their money to buy legitimacy or collaboration in the Western society countries, make ally yeah. with the elites there, buy their legitimacy and export some of the interests of their own countries. For example, sell Congo's mines to these elite in the West to gain legitimacy and keep their power strong in their own country. Chinese elite has been doing that in the past, but now the Communist Party is not satisfied with it anymore. They want to change the whole thing and lead with its own autonomy, which means, for example, the Belt and Road Initiatives. York Wutke, the president of the uh, European Chamber of Commerce, has recently said openly in an interview saying that wherever China's Belt and Road Initiative goes, it's strategically laying the foundation for its own next plan of development 
in different industries. For example, in EV, like electric cars, in artificial intelligence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very strategic. So China is expanding its own leadership in these new sectors that will be the leading sectors of industry for the future world. And once it achieves that, the current advantage of Western power will be eliminated. And by then, we will have very little counterbalance or, or bargaining chips to assert a more democratic protection of labor kind of model of development. That will mean the damage, the end of the attraction of democracy to any country. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. Um, I was asked at a speech I recently gave, an online lecture, um, I was asked, so what can we do in Europe to defend our democracy? My answer was actually, well, I, I started at the very basic. I said, well, I think we have to go into schools. We have to start in schools at very young age to teach our children in liberal democracies what it means to live such a political system and to teach the values and also to teach the threats that are coming up and how we can defend that. Funnily, I, I didn't know, I saw, I saw um, the, uh, the State Department's Office of Policy Planning in the US. They recently released a, a paper called The Elements of the China Challenge. They gave 10 points. And point number seven was educating Americans about the China challenge. The China challenge. And point number nine, reforming US education system towards that direction as well. So we are still talking about, although a lot of things happening right next to us, people don't feel the impact of the China policies for their future lives and the lives of their children. Of course, I mean, education for the younger generation is so important. It's not only about political reality, but also about the economic reality. The future of Europe, let's say, America, where we leave it to its chaos at the moment, for Europe is losing its competitive edge because of the relatively backward education in the, for example, digitalization. And we are leaving a lot of open pitfalls there. We are ignoring the importance of these, these new sectors. Younger generation, somehow, even if they want to get better education, are, there's not good education for them available. And then the other thing, of course, is the strategic investment of the states into such sectors. I keep on comparing China's Huawei and the Nokia. When Huawei gets unlimited low interest rate loans or zero interest rate of loans from the state to develop this long-term technology and build up the 5G technology far ahead of other companies, Nokia got no government support but have to rely on the stock market, which uh, forced itself to get into more and more narrow, more profit-oriented short-term profit-oriented strategy. So that kind of restricted itself from developing further the, the next generations of technology. And Europe has been so short-sighted to allow this to happen. We are now seeing, of course, a lot of this short-sighted strategy making in Europe, but only a crisis could bring us to the reality and take painful actions. Otherwise, we will lose all the advantage in a much shorter time than we believe. By the time when this generation of kids grow up, they will have very little space to maneuver. So what do you think about um, the 
future administration in the US when we talk about Corona, for example, and I'm not talking about the, the internal handling of the virus. Yes, also it has is related to it. But what I mean is like as a propaganda or a strategic tool, how will the Biden administration bring that back into balance? Because right now China is very much profiting or benefiting from the problems the US has. It's painful, isn't it, to watch? It is painful, right? And um, it gives a lot of democracy critics good arguments at hand to point on the dictatorship and say, look, this is not so bad there, right? Yeah, I have seen, I have read several German articles, including the business department director from Spiegel, who said that we should learn from China's way of pandemic control. That, of course, is something also painful to read because, like, the kind of ignorance about the China's way of pandemic control, how much cost it is on human rights, and that a German citizen would simply matter-of-factly praise that <laughs> instead of looking at the example of New Zealand or Taiwan or Japan, which is also successful. This is ex actually why I, I say we have to go into schools. Well, we don't want to create an enemy or a picture of an enemy, but to create a, an awareness of the challenges that come from a political system that has a lot of money, a lot of manpower, military strength and a strategy. And uh, that does not correspond with our political system. And this is why I say we really have to go to the very, very early kids, to the young kids and start making them understand why it is so important that we have all the obstacles that democracies give to decision processing. Why is it so worse to defend it? You can see that the handling of the corona crisis is a good example for a dictatorship actually handles such a crisis and can utilize it for itself. Yeah, you raise a very important aspect of the matter at the moment, because what we know is that due to the lack of awareness of what China has done in the pandemic control to violate human rights, the Chinese government's propaganda is spreading very well among the teenagers and who are using TikTok. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. TikTok is basically the sun company of ByteDance, which is the most successful new media in China at the moment. And TikTok, although it pretends to be an independent company based in the United States, it actually follows lots of guiding rules back in China, which means no harsh criticism of Chinese government's policy towards minorities, like they sense the content of that. And the algorithm feature the content that are painting China as in the peak time of the pandemic in Wuhan, instead of showing the misery of the Wuhan people due to the strict control and actually lack of response of government in the first stage, TikTok actually show all these funny videos of people enjoying themselves while staying at home in the quarantine time. Mm. And for example, later show all these achievements of the China's pandemic control and etc. No doubt about it, it's very successful in China at the moment. Pandemic control is very successful, uh, but it's at such a kind of heavy-handed measure that if it's applied in Germany, 80% of the German population will go to the street to protest. And yet these young generations somehow feel, oh, this is great, because they don't see. They are kind of brainwashed by this app algorithm. So we have to really be very aware of what is going on, what is China doing. 
to our next generation and also cultivate our own counter weapon ideologically. Well, this is uh, one of the reasons or the most important reasons why we're actually talking together here in this, in this forum, right? In this podcast to, to make awareness to people. Yeah. So at the moment, what we are seeing that with the Biden administration coming into power, he will face a lot of challenges, both domestic and internationally. And these two actually are intertwined with each other, how Biden will manage to reset the whole U.S. domestic policy, the political situation, realign them, will present the key indicator will create very important examples for the future decade. Otherwise, China is really, at the moment, getting an upper hand by sealing off its own border, taking heavy-handed measures for pandemic control, and establishing an Asian-Pacific leadership in trade. Yeah, having said so, the new administration will shape a new relationship between China and the US, or in some characteristics. And regardless of how that actually turns out, we have to be aware in Europe that really this applies to us in Europe very much and very closely. It touches us. It's, it's not that far away. It's not one country to the left 9,000 kilometers and the other one to the right 9,000 kilometers, roundabout, whatever. But that we are in the middle of it. It is time for Europe actually to also take part and, and, and especially for Europe to shape their own strategy and environment to counter whatever or to react on and handle whatever kind of relation the US and China will have in the coming years to be prepared for that. Yeah, and to acknowledge the challenge, the heavy challenge that is they are facing instead of avoiding it and go with the ad hoc policies that we have right now well having said so thank you very much for your time we'll probably be back in uh, a couple of weeks it was nice talking to you Liwen. thank you thank you it's great talking with you bye 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 with chopsticks the truth about dictatorships a podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chanahan